You're listening to Cape Watch Radio with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through the book of Acts. Call me sinners, poor, needy, and weak. He stands to save you now for pity and love, mighty power. He's willing and able. He calls you now. Paul had the promises of God in his heart, and he hung on to these promises of God. Why are we always running around like chicken with our heads caught off, trying to figure out what we're going to do when we have the promises of God ourselves? We've got God's promises that are throughout his word. We have his promises, but listen, folks, I'm just like you. I wish I could rest in the promises of God. I wish I could sing that song, stand among the promises of Christ. My, I wish I could say that was my life. It is not always natural to lean on God's promises, and we can find ourselves looking all around this world and in many directions for help. In today's message from the book of Acts, Pastor Dave passionately explores why we can trust the truth of God's Word and always rest in God's promises. Now here's Pastor Dave for part one of his message entitled, The Heart of Paul's Defense. So during a trial in a small Missouri town, the local prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand. The witness was a rather well-dressed elderly lady, you know, kind of like the grandmom type. She was well-spoken and quite poised. As she was sworn in, she placed her hand on the Bible, and she was asked, would she tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help her God? The woman affirmed the oath, an oath that she took rather seriously because she always told the truth. The prosecuting attorney approached the woman and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you've been quite a disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk badly about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot when you haven't the sense you realize that you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper-pushing shyster. Yes, I know you quite well. The lawyer was kind of stunned, and he was kind of taken aback, and he said, not knowing what else to do, he pointed over to the defense attorney and said, do you know him? She says, well, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, has a bad drinking problem. The man can't build or keep a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention he cheated on his wife with three different women. Yes, I know him. The defense attorney almost fainted. Laughter and gas thundered throughout the courtroom, and the audience was on the verge of chaos, and the judge slammed his gavel down and and called everybody to order. And he slowly called the counselors over to him. He leaned over in a small voice and said, if either of you two morons ask her if she knows me, you're going to jail. (laughs) Someone once said the truth will set you free or it'll make you mad. In a trial, truth and evidence are supposed to go hand in hand. The truth is supposed to be supported by the evidence. The purpose of the trial is to examine the evidence and get testimony from witnesses that prove beyond a reasonable doubt whether the evidence is true. But there seems to be a tension these days between evidence and truth. It seems, however, that the court system, there's always one left out in favor of the other. Truth be told, truth really seems to be less important these days. doesn't seem to be as esteemed as it once was. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I possibly believe that truth somehow became open to interpretation. Somehow, we got to decide what is truth and what isn't truth. And you've heard the old saying, well, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. So I guess we have to look at what is truth. The word truth is almost oftenly used to mean in accord with a fact or reality. And it may mean fidelity to an original thought or, or a standard or ideal. I find it extremely interesting that Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines truth as this, the exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. I like that. I like that a lot. The commonly understood opposite of truth is falsehood. We believe the Bible is God's truth. God's word is his truth because God is truth. And I have a few places in the Bible that I'd like you to turn to today. Starting back, and we'll go in order. So if you start back in Exodus, look at Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, God of merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God is abounding in truth because he is truth. Move over to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now we have to make our way all the way up to the glorious Psalms. Psalm 25, verse 5. Simply says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day, waiting for your truth. Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. In Psalm 43, verse 3, it says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle, being led by God's truth, which is so important to us. And finally, Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And down in verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. God is truth. And we could go on and on. There's only 223 times that the word truth appears in the Scriptures. And when you read them, you get an idea of what God's character is. And I say what he is. God is truth. And for the Christian, the ultimate expression of that truth is found also in the Bible in the form of God's Son, Jesus Christ. You know the scripture I'm going to, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, he adds to it, no one comes to the Father except through me. A very, very hard verse for many, many people to glean from. Because many people think, well, all roads lead to heaven, but not according to the truth of Jesus Christ. But you know, there's, there's philosophers and skeptics who will dismiss this claim. But for us Christians, he, Jesus is the mainstay of our hope, our security, and our guidance. You know, Jesus who walked on water, who claimed to be divine, who rose from the dead and said that he was the truth, not only was the truth, but he said he was the originator of truth. All truth came from him. Now, if Jesus is wrong, we should ignore him. But if he is right, 
then it is true that we should listen to him. The eyewitnesses wrote what they saw. They were with him. They watched him perform many miracles. They watched him heal the sick, calm the storm with a command, and even rise people from the dead or raise people from the dead. Either you believe or you dismiss these claims. If you dismiss them, then that's your prerogative. But if you accept them, then you are faced with decisions to make about Jesus Christ. What will you believe about him? What will you decide about him? Is he true? Is he the truth as he claims to be? Or and is he said what he says is true? See, truth confirms reality. You know, Jesus performed many miracles and even rose from the dead himself. And this is substantial evidence to support the fact that he is who he says he is. It was witnessed by over 500 people. And the Apostle Paul was one of those people. The Apostle Paul, who we've been studying, is one of those people. When Paul speaks of Jesus, he speaks of truth because he was an eyewitness and he saw the risen Lord on their way to Damascus. He went away to Arabia for, for at least three years where he was taught by the Lord himself. He was caught up into the third heaven where he saw miraculous things. So if anyone has the proof, if anyone has the truth and the evidence of the truth, it would be the Apostle Paul. So here he is today. When we looked last time together, last time we met a couple weeks ago, we opened chapter 24. And in chapter 24, we examined verses 1 through 9, and here we read the accusations that were made by the lawyer Tertullus, who was representing the high priest and the elders. And Tertullus began with flattering statements. You remember those flattering statements that he made? trying to butter up Felix, the governor, trying to get him on his side. I mean, after all, if you win the judge, you can win the case. So let's butter him up, and let's just say wonderful flowery things upon him. Oh, how great of a governor you are, and how you kept the peace, and how wonderful it was that you kept the peace. Well, we proved that last week, that that was basically a lie. But then he brings these accusations against Paul, and in doing so, John Corsa says that he uses name-calling lies and rumors and innuendos. Now, they seem to work for someone when the truth is hidden, when there's no evidence of the truth, you know, lies, rumors, innuendos, when, when you don't have proof of the truth, they don't become accusations, they become assertions. And assertions are just those things that have no proof or validity. In verses 5 and 6, we read as Tertullus accuses Paul of being a plague, of inciting sedition, of, of being a ringleader of a sect and profaning the temple. Tertullus would stop at nothing to win this case. He didn't care if there were lies. He didn't care if there were rumors. He didn't care if there were innuendos. I mean, he even threw Commander Lysus under the bus. He even threw the Roman soldier under the bus, accusing him of interfering with Jewish law. But the evidence presented by Tertullus was just circumstantial at best. And most of the accusations were indeed quite false because we were reading Luke's account all the way along. Instead, they were assertions. And as I said, assertion is when you state something positively with absolutely no support or attempt to prove it. That's an assertion. The evidence against Paul had been inconsistent with the accusations that had been made. But Paul was in front of the governor now, and his life was at stake. Paul's very life was at stake because if the governor found him guilty of one of those things, sedition being the worst, he could be put to death on the spot. If the governor chose to hand them back to the Jews so that they could enact their law, he could be killed for blasphemy, for heresy, for profaning the temple. So as we begin today's text, 
We see Felix sitting there. Felix says absolutely nothing, but he nods to Paul. And Paul can begin now this defense. This is where we are today. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered. It was Paul's turn once again to speak. You've got to love the Apostle Paul. He was never mixing words, and he was never short to say something. He always had something to say. And when he spoke, I would imagine that the majority of people really listened intently to what he had to say. He was a well-learned man. It was Paul's turn to speak. But the heart of Paul's defense centers around two things. It centers around the truth and the evidence or lack of to support the truth. Paul knew the truth, for he had witnessed it, and he had evidence to support it. Look at verse 10b to 11. Inasmuch as you know you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more than cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Paul now responds to Tertullius' accusation. He doesn't use flattery towards Felix. There's no false praise, just the facts. Agent Friday from Dragnet. Just the facts, sir, just the facts. Yeah, yeah, Felix, you've ruled a long time. Yeah, you have experience, and therefore you have some knowledge of what was going on. This was true. All Paul said was true. Paul just spoke the truth. Paul was very, very aware of Felix's knowledge of this sect of Nazarenes, this way. Paul was also aware of how Felix felt about how the Jews were persecuting them. Paul was well aware of that. He was well aware of Felix. Paul wasn't trusting in some judge to decide his life. Paul wasn't trusting in some jury to make a claim of whether what was true and what was not. Paul wasn't trusting in a legal system or a trial system that was going to ascertain whether he or not was true. Paul had his trust totally in Jesus Christ. And why wouldn't he? We remember when we read when, when Paul was in his darkest hour, Jesus came to visit him. Jesus came to visit him and said, take courage, Paul. Be of good cheer. You did a great job of testifying me in Jerusalem. And guess what? Now I'm sending you to Rome. And you're going to testify there of me. So Paul had promises of God. Paul had the promises of God in his heart, and he hung on to these promises of God. Why are we always running around like chicken with our heads caught off, trying to figure out what we're going to do when we have the promises of God ourselves? We've got God's promises that are throughout his word. We have his promises. But listen, folks, I'm just like you. I wish I could rest in the promises of God. I wish I could sing that song, stand among the promises of Christ. My, I wish I could say that was my life. I wish I could say that's what I did. But I don't always do that. I don't always stand on the promises of God, and I'm not really sure why. Scriptures are full of the promises of God. It's full. Paul was standing on Christ's promise. Paul was standing on God's word alone. You know, when... You, when you go into the, to the Bible and you start looking, time and time and time again, God's word has been proven true. And I'm only going to give you one, one of my most favorites, Joshua 21, verse 45. It's written here, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. Wow. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when God says something and gives us a promise, it's true. And we can glean from that promise. Regardless of the situation, regardless of where you are in life, regardless of the horrible things that may be happening to you or where you are, you can glean from God's promises and you can say yes and amen. Because God's promises are true. God's promises are truth. And we glean from them. 
Paul knew that. Paul was standing on the promises of God. Don't think he was humming that song, though. But he was standing on God's promises. So Paul then addresses the charges against them. And it's really interesting the way he addresses these promises. The first thing he does is he denies two of them, being a pestilence and that of sedition. And I'm kind of glad that he shows that there's no proof for sedition because, as I said before, sedition was the most serious of all the crimes. Sedition, being charged of rebellion against the Roman government, the Roman Empire, huh, you're dead. If you're guilty of that, you're gone in a heartbeat. Look at verse 12 and 13. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me of. Paul says, where's your proof? Where's your proof? For one thing, folks, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. Is that enough time for me to organize an assault, let alone lead an insurrection 12 days? I mean, how many people can I talk to in 12 days? That doesn't seem like there's enough time there. And I wasn't even in the temple in dispute. What was Paul doing in the temple? Well, first thing we read in verse 11, if you go back, why did Paul come to Jerusalem? To worship. He came to Jerusalem to worship God. He came to Jerusalem to come into the temple to worship God. He said, I'm not a pest. I didn't trouble anyone. You know, it's really hard to be a plague or a pest when you're worshiping the true and living God. When you're in true worship and living God, it's really hard to be a downer on somebody. I mean, when God's really moving in your heart and you're standing there worshiping, it's really hard to be down on somebody or, or to, to be a pest somebody. Furthermore, Paul says, I didn't even teach in this city. So I wasn't a pest. I wasn't a bother to anyone. There's just not enough time for Paul to do the things he's accused of. Nothing of these accusations except lies, rumors, and innuendos. And even though it had been more than 12 days and many witnesses were easily found, there were none there. There were no witnesses in front of them. There was simply no proof, no evidence to support these. Paul says, nor can they prove the things that they now accuse me. So Paul denies these charges of being a pestilence and sedition, and then he confesses to three charges. He confesses to three charges, and this is interesting. He stands up for what is right. Paul stands up for what is true. Paul doesn't shriek away. He did deny the two charges, but he stands up for what is right. He stands up for truth, and I think this is really neat we can glean from him. Paul truthfully admits his guilt to three things. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in this law and the prophets, having hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Paul says, these things I do. I did them. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful testimony. Yes, I am guilty. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm worshiping God, the God of our fathers, he says. Paul makes it clear to them, I haven't abandoned God. I haven't abandoned God. I'm worshiping God now in a new and living way. The fact that Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ didn't mean that he was worshiping a different God. It means he was fulfilled now in worshiping the true living God. The true living God. You remember the argument that Jesus had with the Sadducees. They were talking about the resurrection and whose wife will he be. And Jesus brings up this really neat passage in Mark 12, 25 and 27. Jesus says, but concerning the dead, they will, they will rise. Have you not read the book of Moses? 
In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Do you hear that? God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He's saying, there is a resurrection. You're greatly mistaken. He was arguing with the Sadducees, trying to put his point of view across. When Jesus said, concerning the dead, they will rise, have you not read? These skeptical Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But yet, they believed in the first five books of Moses. What's the second book? Exodus. Here Jesus is quoting from Exodus. He's quoting from Exodus, their book that they believed on and trying to show them their error of their ways. Paul declares that he believed all Scripture. He believed in every prophecy in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ. Quote, Do you ever wonder why God gave us all these instructions concerning the tabernacle? Little children learn by pictures. The Bible is a picture book, and God wants us to learn the truths he has for us by looking at the pictures he has given us. Paul knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Paul believed the pictures God painted for him. They all came true when he saw Jesus Christ. Paul knew the pictures. We get angry sometimes and we get upset because we're studying hard passages in the Old Testament and they don't seem to make sense to us and they they seem to go on and on and, and there's all kinds of parts and things like that. But the picture is Jesus Christ. Old Testament. Christ concealed, New Testament, Christ revealed. We look at that and we glean from that. Paul says, I believe all the Scripture concerning the Messiah. And remember, back then, the only Scripture there was was the Old Testament. That's the only Scripture that there was. We've been given such a greater privilege than that. We have a New Testament. We have an entire New Testament. And I guess the question is, do you believe all the Scriptures? Do you believe them be true? It's very sad today that there are some who claim that the Scriptures are not relevant for today. Not relevant. So, truth changes? What was true is not true now? Oh, I have a hard time with that. Truth will always be truth. Truth will always stand against falsity. It will always there. It doesn't cease to be true. And just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it ceases to be true. God has not changed his mind. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul says, I have hope in God. A hope that, by the way, some of you have. Because he looked into the crowd of his accusers, and there were some Pharisees there too. There were some of the Pharisees there too, and they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And he said, I have this hope, a hope that some of you have also. Paul's basis and belief is founded on something that was accepted by a very, very large segment of the Jewish population, especially the Pharisees, and that was the resurrection of the dead. But Paul now has a better hope than they because he saw the risen Christ. He has evidence of the resurrection himself. He saw the risen Christ. You know, we're told in the book of Revelation that when we find out there's going to actually be two resurrections, one for the just and one for the unjust. Pastor Dave will continue teaching through the book of Acts the next time you join us. You know, programs like Cape Watch Radio can be a huge blessing that God uses in the lives of countless people. But we must always be careful about just hearing God's word. Remember what James said? Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. 
for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. As you join us each day here on Cape Watch Radio, it's our hope and prayer that you would not only hear God's Word, but that you would do God's Word, that you would take the lessons that you're learning here on Cape Watch Radio and apply them to your everyday life. And we want to help you to continue to apply God's Word to your life. We have resources to help you in this journey. Log on to www.capewatchradio.com and there you'll find helpful tools that you can use as you study God's Word. Again, our web address is www.capewatchradio.com or you can always give us a call. Our phone number here at Cape Watch Radio is 609-884-5821. That's 609-884-5821. And don't forget to place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time as Pastor Dave continues teaching through the Word of God. That's all the time we have for today. May God bless you as you continue to listen to Cape Watch Radio.